Testing, testing, one, two, three. Check, check, check. Mike, check. Well, it's week 23 <laughs> of COVID. Quarantine. 19. Morale is incredibly low. <laughs> You're still alive. I try to keep my distance, but <laughs> I avoid it. But yeah, quarantine. This uh, is the worst opening I've ever seen. <laughs> Every opening is, is, a, is a struggle. We're two months in, right? Is it two months? Month and a half, maybe. Isn't it six weeks, seven weeks? Yeah, six or seven weeks into COVID-19's domination of the planet. (laughs) (laughs) This is the dystopian future that we were all looking forward to. We just didn't know it would happen because of a pangolin. It is interesting. We're now getting a look into... (laughs) Comics. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What it would be like to live in a Walking Dead type scenario. Yeah. Post-apocalyptic. Picketing about how outraged they are for not being able to go outside yeah we were watching videos of protests in cities happening all across the nation of people demanding the right to leave their homes because they feel oppressed while the government's trying to keep them alive yeah at the same time looking on more of the positive side it it is interesting seeing how many people are rallying around doing things from home. I think even the Russo brothers right now, actually, while, while we're recording this, are doing a live watch of Endgame. And, really? And, yeah, responding and tweeting right now. And, uh, you know, like, people like Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie are doing live concerts where he just goes over his music, his whole catalog of music since the late 90s. It's pretty yeah. crazy. It's really changing the way we engage with each other and with the content that we love. Mm-hmm. Like we can't see movies in theaters right now, but a lot of that stuff is going straight to streaming platforms right? immediately, which is cool. You don't have to leave your home. Yeah. And sad. Things are getting delayed. Yeah. Movies are getting delayed. All of Marvel's slate that I look forward to annually is all getting pushed back about six months, which is unfortunate. But at least we're healthy. Yeah. I love what SNL's been doing lately. Broadcasting from their living rooms. Yeah. You really do see the best and the worst of people (laughs) in times like these. It is crazy. Which is topical, considering what we're talking about today on the the pulp. That's the pulp. The the cult podcast. (laughs) What are we talking about today? Today we are talking about the Watchmen, or just Watchmen. (laughs) (laughs) The really popular DC comic from the 80s that's had a few interpretations in recent media. Yeah, and the reason that we're not, we're not doing a film today, we're not doing music. We thought last year's HBO's Watchmen series by Damon Lindelof was absolutely and undeniably incredible and superb in every way. Mm -hmm. So before we can talk about that, which we're going to do in the next episode, we are going to talk about the comic book that it was based off of, just to give you all a context of the series, because the Damon Lindelof series is not a sequel to the 2009 film adaptation by Zack Snyder. It's a direct sequel to this comic book, realized in a limited motion picture television series. Yeah. So if you imagine this comic book as the first part and then Damon Lindelof's series as the sequel to that, even though it's not a comic book, but it's a television series on HBO, it's the direct sequel to this comic book that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. Did you like Snyder's movie? Did I like Snyder's movie? That was an interesting... Did I like Snyder's movie? (laughs) A lot of it I loved. Uh, You know, he took a couple liberties with the way the story ended. But I think a lot of the depiction of the, you know, like the graphical imagery was pretty spot on. Well, let me say this to answer actually the question. Some people think that the Watchmen comic is so sacred that no film adaptation should have ever been made. Like Alan Moore? <laughs> no, some people think that as well. And also no sequel should have ever been made. And it's part of why we wanted to do this episode on the comic book was because we think the Damon Lindelof sequel that he made last year was so good that it was actually worth talking about. It did the series justice. Yeah. Damon Lindelof had such a great understanding of the source material that we're talking about today. I think what Damon Lindelof did was a lot better than Zack Snyder's interpretation. It's easier for me to actually talk about what Zack Snyder did wrong because I liked a lot of it. I just thought that there were a few missing ingredients, which I'll name right now. Love. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, obviously it looked good. I didn't like the casting for Ozymandias. I didn't like the casting for Silk Spectre 2 or 
And I was going to say, I, I didn't like the casting for Billy Crudup as Dr. Manhattan. However, I actually liked him as Dr. Manhattan. I didn't like how he talked when he was Dr. Manhattan. He was a little bit too human uh, instead of the disconnected Dr. Manhattan that you read on the pages, mm-hmm. which also could have been admittedly the direction. It could have been Zack Snyder's vision and interpretation of that character, which says a lot about Zack Snyder as a director. And then I also didn't like the change of the ending of the Watchmen comic. Completely changed. In the movie, yeah, where you don't see the actual realization of Ozymandias' plan. Well, it's, his plan was just different in Snyder's film. Yeah, his plan was completely different. So those are the things I just didn't like. I thought that a couple of casting choices were wrong. Ozymandias wasn't as conniving and intelligent as I thought he should have been. Sorry, Matthew Good. You hate Matthew Good. <laughs> no, I actually really like Matthew Good. I just didn't think he was right for that role. This also just could have been direction again, though. <laughs> it's a very hard role to get. Jeremy Irons killed it, so. In the new show. In the new series. Yeah. So this is this is sort of literature. Yeah. Comics are an important part of pop culture, historically, so it's cool to do an episode on this. Yeah. I haven't read a lot of comics in my time. I know you are a great lover of the medium. I am a fan of comics. I could probably count the comics I've read in my lifetime on one hand, but Watchmen, for me, is something that's incredibly influential. I think, especially at the time, it really set up, maybe you can agree or disagree, but the modern comic and the modern look and feel and tone of what comics were. You know, like they were less for kids now and more for adults as well. Mm-hmm. It was very mature. Yes, I agree. And like I said earlier, some say that this is the best comic book ever written. A, a lot of people say that and think that. It usually comes down to this comic book and Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns mm-hmm. uh, or one of the long Halloween interpretations, um, something, something along with Batman. But there's a few out there that are thrown around as the best comic books ever written and Watchmen is definitely one of those at the top of the list as it says in the trailer for Zack Snyder's film they call it the most celebrated comic of all time Mm. I thought that that was an interesting interpretation because they couldn't claim this is the greatest the number one comic book ever written of all time (laughs) yeah before we talk about what Watchmen is about we should talk about who wrote it the mind behind the madness or the madness behind the mind yeah Am I right? Am the, I right, Gabe? The enigmatic figure that is Alan Moore. Not Al- Roger Moore. Alanis Morissette. Is that his full name? No. No. Oh. <laughs> it could be. It's his necromancer name. No, it's Alanis Morissette's name. Oh. Oh, is that actually a person? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea who that is. Oh, my gosh. Who is that? Is it a model? She's a singer. Oh. A songwriter. No Here. way. <laughs> that sounds like a made-up name. Nope. <laughs> Boom. Wow. Here we go. She looks like a female Ray Romano. Huh. All right, that's enough. So who is... Ray Romano. <laughs> <laughs> who is Alan Moore? And why is he important? And uh, why would he write a comic book like this? What caused him to be so creative and crazy? Alan Moore was born and grew up in England. Mm-hmm. They were on the poorer side, so he lived in a house with his parents and his younger brother and his grandmother. And then two random people who uh, worked at a brewery and one worked as a printer. He was an avid reader from an early age, which eventually led him to reading British comic book strips. And eventually he went to grammar school and it was there he started interacting with some people from middle class and that were more educated than he had ever come into contact with. And it was shocking to him going from being at the top of his class to being one of the lowest in the class. This was around the age between 7 and 11, early age. But because of this, it led to him disliking school and claiming to have no interest in academic study. (laughs) The quote, how he believed that there was a covert curriculum. Yeah. (laughs) And he thought that the establishment was trying to indoctrinate children with punctuality, obedience, and the acceptance of monotony. Yep. So from an early age, he was developing that distaste for people and society. Distaste for... The powers, mm-hmm. the powers that be. Superpowers. So when he was around 16, 17, he started publishing poetry and essays in fanzines, which are non-official fan magazines. It's like this podcast. Yep. <laughs> Brought to you by fanzine. And then he started his own fanzine called Embryo, and he began... <laughs> I almost said this too flippantly. And he began dealing LSD at school. Nice, as you do. As one does. In the boroughs of Northampton. <laughs> 
eventually getting expelled in 1970 when he was around like 17, 18. And the headmaster that expelled him called almost every other academic establishment and told them not to accept any applications from him because he was a danger to the moral well-being of the rest of the students. What a Snape thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) Alan Moore. Well, Alan Moore said that's probably true. Yeah, true. And then so he went back to living with his parents in his parents' house for a few years, doing various jobs. Then in 1973, he got in a relationship with a woman named Phyllis Dixon. They married and moved into a a small little flat, and he got a job working in an office for a subcontractor and eventually quit because he wasn't fulfilled and wanted to do more art. So in 1979-80, he started writing and illustrating his own comics and eventually started working with a writer he had known from when he was younger named Steve Moore. No relation? No relation. They started producing some comics and then eventually got a reoccurring series on a weekly magazine called Sounds. A lot of this was satire and play on other niche sci-fi things that he was into at the time. And it was at this time he decided to start focusing more on writing instead of illustrating. Uh, And then he started getting jobs for short stories, which wasn't what he wanted to do at the time. But looking back, he said it was one of the best educations of how to tell a great story, just to have uh, five to six pages to be able to tell a start to finish story. I think a lot of literature classes today tell you the same thing. Yeah. That you can learn how how to structure a story if you can write a short story effectively. And did he ever learn? He ended up being freelance and wrote a bunch of stuff in the first half of the 80s. And there was a comic called 2000 AD that he was a part of that got recognized by DC Comics editor Len Wein. Wein? Wein? Wein. (laughs) Len Fein. Len Wein. If you pronounce the, like, whatever. Mr. Wein? Who commissioned Moore to write some stuff for DC and eventually wrote a story for Superman called For the Man Who Has Everything. And about, I think this came out in 1985. And this was illustrated by Dave Gibbons, who is the person who eventually came to illustrate the Watchmen comic book. Then the Watchmen series started running in 1986 for 12 issues all the way through 1987. It's the only comic to win the Hugo Award in a one-time category best other form. It is widely seen as Moore's best work and has been regularly described as the greatest comic book ever written. Comics historian Les Daniels noted that Watchmen called into question the basic assumptions on which the superhero genre is formulated. And to this day, along with Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, like I said earlier, Watchmen set off a chain reaction of rethinking the nature of superheroes and heroism itself and pushed the genre darker for more than a decade. And this dark tone can still be seen today, the influences of what Watchmen established back then. And Frank Miller, that should be noted. This series won acclaim and would continue to be regarded as one of the most important literary works ever produced in the field of comic books. Moore briefly became a media celebrity, and in true Moore fashion, it led him to rejecting society and causing a desire to withdraw and no longer attend comic book conventions. Sad. Yeah. And then, basically, after this, this is the understatement of all understatements, but Moore went on to write hundreds and hundreds of more stories. More stories? <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of stories. By Moore. After Watchmen. And he kept writing all the way until last year in 2019, and then he now claims to be retired. I'm sure we'll get more and more. And then a little bit more on Alan Moore. In the late 2000s, he went very independent, saying he detested the mainstream comics industry. On top of all of his achievements and successes, Moore, just to paint a picture, has a worldview that some probably would consider strange. Um, He has been known to advocate for different psychedelics and philosophies of the occult, where he tries not to portray the occult as dark, but more sophisticated, experimental, and exuberant. He's explored subjects like erotic freedom, Lovecraftian concepts, along with Cthulhu mythos, and many more magical ideas. Like David Lynch. He is a little like Lynch. I would say he's even darker than Lynch. Yeah. To be honest. But here's a brief soundbite that Gabe and I found when researching Alan Moore, where he's talking about magic. In real life. (laughs) (laughs) Gabe and I think that uh, you can get a good understanding. You you can... Get a visual image of him in your head. He's kind of like a a homeless Gandalf the Grey. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. He does look... In the best way. I don't mean that to be demeaning, but... He wears the crazy on the sleeve, so to speak. Yeah, we think that you can really get a good understanding of who Alan Moore is hearing it from him rather than us during this clip. So take a listen. 
on my 40th birthday rather than merely bore my friends by having anything as mundane as a midlife crisis. I decided it might be more interesting to actually terrify them by going completely mad and declaring myself to be a magician. This had been something that had been coming for a while. It seemed to be a logical end step in my career as a writer. And the problem is that with magic, being in many respects a science of language, you have to be very careful what you say. Because if you suddenly declare yourself to be a magician without any knowledge of what that entails, then one day you are likely to wake up and to discover that that is exactly what you are. There is some confusion as to what magic actually is. I think that this can be cleared up if you just look at the very earliest descriptions of magic. Magic, in its earliest form, is often referred to as the art. I believe that this is completely literal. I believe that magic is art, and that art, whether that be writing, music, sculpture, or any other form, is literally magic. Art is, like magic, the science of manipulating symbols, words or images, to achieve changes in consciousness. The very language of magic seems to be talking as much about writing or art as it is about supernatural events. Um, our original way of seeing the world was as a place entirely inhabited by spirits where everything had its indwelling essence where everything was in some sense sacred including ourselves the age of reason changed all that while it's inarguable that reason brought many great benefits and was a very necessary stage of our development unfortunately this led to materialism where the physical material world was seen as the be-all and end-all of existence, where inevitably we were seen as creatures that had no spiritual dimension, that had no souls, living in a soulless universe of dead matter. Well, that was interesting. I think uh, in terms of spiral dynamics, he's very much an advocate for purple. Yeah, he's very insightful. You, you get that initial vibe that he's completely crazy but he's clearly smarter than most people or at least more than most people give him credit for because a lot of the crazy theories people have are often founded in truth but he is um he has a lot of insight i don't know yeah i think he's tapped into something that i'll probably never be tapped into maybe one day you have to level up (laughs) he's clearly operating on an entirely different level than the bulk of humanity like us he's like a wizard you're a wizard alan alan (laughs) (laughs) He probably would have been the kid that's recruited to Hogwarts. What house do you think he would have been put in? Uh, A little house I like to call Slytherin. No. He seems like the kid who would want to go to Slytherin, but he got sent to like Hufflepuff or something. And then he's just really mad for the rest of his time at Hogwarts. So now, Gabe. Yeah. What is Watchmen about? That's a big question, Stephen. It's about many things. Well, let's let's break this down for the audience because there's the plot of Watchmen in mm-hmm. the, the comic book, and then the reason why Watchmen was written, which talks about the social and political themes at the time. So let's start at the top. Can you talk about the historical context inside the Watchmen universe? Because things are a little bit different from our timeline. To set the stage, yeah, it is essentially an alternate timeline. The comic sort of begins in medias res where you take up with these characters in the mid-80s at the height of the Cold War. In this alternate timeline, Nixon is still president. He's been president for a few terms now because the Vietnam War went very well thanks to the arrival and intervention of our own Dr. Manhattan, who is kind of, I guess you could call the driving force in this entire story. They call him the real-life Superman. Yeah. Superman is real, and his name is Dr. Manhattan. Uh, Essentially, in this alternative timeline, superheroes kind of came about in the 30s and 40s. There are no, outside of Dr. Manhattan, real superpowers in this world, except for maybe 
certain feats of strength that certain characters can do. But really, there aren't a superpower. So a lot of these costumed vigilantes are just like regular people running around. They start cropping up in the 30s and 40s, and then a lot of other people in America start getting excited about costumed heroism. So they don capes and hoods and leggings, and they go out there and start fighting crime in a very theatrical way. Kind of like kick-ass. Yeah. Yeah. It plays on the idea, what if there were no superpowers, but comic book characters or heroes actually dressed up and started hitting the streets? Yeah. So that sort of begins in the late 30s and the 40s and takes place during World War II, and that's when you have the formation of the Minutemen, which is essentially the first grouping or gathering of several of these individuals who dress up, and they come together to sort of combine their efforts to stamp out organized theatrical crime <laughs> across the nation. And supervillains kind of take a similar role. You have kind of crazy, kooky, manic characters. But so it's like play acting. It's like theater yeah. in their social... And a, a lot of it is for the public to think that they're being protected when they're when it's really just all publicism. Yeah. A lot like... Uh, Modern day. <laughs> what was the Amazon series that just came out recently? The Boys. Yeah, it's kind of like the boys if there were no superpowers, where it yeah. becomes something that's very media-heavy. and Yeah, they're essentially celebrities. Yeah. Like, if actors decided to start fighting crime on the streets. Yeah. Like, you see Bradley Cooper whooping some ass on the corner near your local deli, because <laughs> he saw a man run away with a woman's purse. He probably does that anyway. <laughs> so that, that goes on, and that movement of heroes, so to speak, starts to get a lot of flack, because... It's concurrent with World War II, and a lot of America sees this real war happening across the world, and so they start to look at these heroes a little cynically. So that leads into the 50s, where you have this event that is so groundbreaking and earth reality-shaking. You have the arrival of Dr. Manhattan, I think it was 1959, in this world, where this, this regular guy, the scientist, is stuck in an intrinsic field generator and is exploded. He's incinerated. He's absolutely annihilated. Down, down to every molecule. <laughs> yeah, at a molecular level, yeah. he ceases to exist. But then he huh. reassembles himself in a few months' time and comes back as essentially a god. Yeah. So now you have our alternate timeline of Earth with costumed heroes in the 50s, and a guy becomes a god and he moves from john osterman the scientist to what they call dr manhattan and he is essentially a god yep uh and that kind of changes everything it changes not only what it means on a macro scale on an international level for politics and socioeconomic relations of nations but also existentially for the individual person in this world what it means to exist as a human because now you're there's literally a god walking amongst you. Yeah. So Dr. Manhattan can literally do anything. He can affect matter on a molecular level. So he can manifest things out of nowhere. He can destroy you <laughs> if he wants. He can look at you and you cease to exist if yeah. he wills it so. He can teleport things across time and space, quite literally. Including himself. Yeah, he can he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. So anyway, that changes a lot of things in the world. And technology is one of those things. They get catapulted essentially into the distant future. And this is where some retro futurism or steampunk vibes yeah. kind of begin. Or I call it just specific to this comic, Ozone Punk because it's not really steam-driven. They, no. they talk about in the comic how instead of things like gasoline on the streets, you smell ozone, because mm. the arrival of Dr. Manhattan causes this surge in technology, where now in this world you have you know floating cars and stuff like that. You have genetically enhanced food items that are commonplace. So you have a lot of technological advancements while society is still you know backsliding. It's still very much a, a world like Blade Runner, where there's Plenty of crime to go around. There's grimy, dirty streets and people everywhere, especially in the cities like New York. So that's the world that they're living in moving into the 60s. Yep. And one of the important things is that Dr. Manhattan is American. Yeah. And so not only how does Dr. Manhattan influence the world on a macro scale, but how is it influencing the American government and then also people who are afraid of a superpower like this, which causes some really intelligent thinking enemies to start plotting against him. And also the government starts trying to look for how to capitalize on Dr. Manhattan and also basically end any war that has ever existed. Yeah. So the next year begins the war in Vietnam, Vietnam yeah. which is promptly put to a close because even though Dr. Manhattan doesn't feel any particular emotion 
towards anything. That, that's I mean, just part of his character. Yeah, thank God he was born in America. So America sends him to Vietnam, and he cleans that act up pretty quick, vaporizing untold numbers of people. And America immediately becomes the most powerful nation on the earth, and Russia is taking a back seat because they don't have a Dr. Manhattan like we do. And that's essentially why Nixon is in office for so long. It's because yeah. of this. Yeah, exactly. He takes the credit for this yeah. surge in power. All these amazing things that are happening don't really do a lot for the average person. Like I said, a lot of the problems that existed then and today still exist in that world at the time. So the 60s happen, Vietnam happens, and now you have a second movement of superheroes, of masked individuals take the stage. I think they call themselves the crime fighters. They're essentially assembled by... Well, I think it was Ozymandias that put them together. Yeah. Under the tutelage of one of the original members of the Minutemen from the 40s, Captain Metropolis, mm. he and Ozymandias sort of put this group of individuals together. And that's where our main cast of characters comes into play in the 60s. They sort of become disbanded in the next 10 to 20 years. And the events of Watchmen all happen in the mid-80s. Yeah. So that's a brief history that, of the Watchmen. That's actually really good because... Now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Sort of. The present is a worrisome time. Because the future is unknown. Nostalgia. That leaves only the past to comfort us. Nostalgia. Where is the essence that was so divine? Nostalgia. Oh, how the ghost of you clings. Nostalgia. It's more than a scent. It's a way back. Nostalgia. You can't stop time without nostalgia. By Vite. For the unforgettable you. Nostalgia. I hate this so much. <laughs> you have a very sensual tone to your voice, I think. So what? you should probably, yeah. Everyone says that. Steven's got a sexy voice. <laughs> Who says that? Everyone feels that way. No one just is brave enough to say it. <laughs> you could do it. Just try it. Just be sexy. Just say, nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. So. So one thing we should say is this comic book is considered a graphic novel. And what a graphic novel is, is a collection of issues. And this was a 12 issue run and it was put out, like I said, between the years of 86 and 87. So once all 12 issues were out, it became a paperback trade. And the format of this comic book was also very unique in that not only was it page by page, panel by panel, telling you this story? But at the end of each issue, it would have kind of an artifact, like an artifact that would have existed in that world. And so it would be like a, a page or an excerpt from a book or um, an article from an a artic newspaper. An article from a newspaper that would have been written in that time that would give you insight into the background, either behind the characters that we're seeing in the 80s or the characters that existed in the 40s or the earlier. Minutemen. Yeah, and sometimes just to flesh out the world a little bit more. Yeah. Several of the articles, the excerpts, rather, were from Under the Hood, which was the book written by the original Night Owl from the 1940s Minutemen in the universe. Wrote sort of his memoirs. It's the, the tell-all of the history of the Minutemen and leading up to the creation of this second wave of superheroes, right? Yeah. Because of that, though, you really get a very in-depth, heavy, and thick immersion into the world building. It's very thorough, the Watchmen comic book, even though it's just 12 issues. It's so meaty. There's so much to chew on, and that really comes through in those addendums at the end of each issue. Yeah. Alan Moore and Gibbons, and I think probably the rest of their team, like Higgins, I think, was the one who colored it. Mm -hmm. John Higgins, the colorist. All three of them, and I'm sure Len Wine, or Ween, the editors were on the same page. They wanted to create something that really hadn't been done before. They wanted something that would be uniquely exemplary of 
the comic book format. And something that, in Alan Moore's own words, that you wouldn't really have been able to do in film or TV or even a book. And he, he said it was something that was meant to be read and gone through several times over for you to really get everything out of it that he had intended you. And you said, mm. you said to me in the past how the way Alan Moore writes stories, there's things that you don't catch on your first read-through that are so evident mm-hmm. on a second or third or fourth read-through that really build the story and show you where things are going. Yeah. And that's just the way good storytelling works. Yeah, I was likening it to a puzzle that you couldn't see until you get the last puzzle piece. And then you realize, oh, I was building a puzzle this whole time. I didn't even know it. Yeah. And it's it's very, very, very good storytelling, very good writing. Yeah, he also said that that was his intention the whole time was to make it something that it wasn't really about. We we talk about often how it's more about the journey than the destination, but he wanted to write something that was the the allure and the purpose of it was was in the steps, was in the way you got to where you were going. So both in the storytelling process, structurally as well as thematically, he wanted to focus on like the development of these characters and making it complex and meaningful. Because comics, especially at the time, they weren't very dense or structurally. But he was really pushing the envelope with that. He, you know, he says, like, in his own words, the place they ended up, he wasn't really concerned with it. He just wanted the story to be the interesting part. Hmm. The characters in Watchmen were originally from a a comic group called the Charlton Comics from the early 80s that kind of had been lost. And then DC District Comics acquired the rights to. And so they were kind of nothing characters before this. And Alan Moore popularized them again. There are six main characters, right, mm-hmm. Gabe? Yeah. The primary cast of the the crime fighters assembled in the 60s and 70s by Adrian Veidt. There are like five or six of them. And in the 80s, those characters are a little older, and that's who you're following. Those characters who are sort of semi-retired, coming back out of the woodwork. So the Watchmen comic book is following these six main characters yeah. in the 80s, in the present of the comic book. Yeah. Like, really five because the comedian is pretty much... He died. He died. The first thing you see is him... He did. He's dead. He did. <laughs> but he's such an important part of what happens later on in the story. Because it's the instigating force that causes these characters to reassemble, get back together. Yeah, and albeit we're not huge fans of the Zack Snyder film. Maybe I'm speaking for myself. I don't know. You like I like most of it a lot. Okay. I love the look and the feel of it. Sure. So That's what she said. But... <laughs> But because we're discussing the comic and we have no way to represent these characters for you, we're going to play short little clips from each character and a popular line from the Zack Snyder film because there's no other way to show you guys who these characters are. So We tried to pick clips that sort of embody part of the character. Yep. Or at least the way they speak. So we're going to go through the six characters. Yeah. First, I think the most important one is Rorschach. Arguably the most iconic character, at least, of the comic that most people would be familiar with. He's the one with the mask. Constantly changing. And they explain it in the comic how that works. I can't remember. It's something in the fabric. It's like an oil in the fabric that's constantly moving, like oil and water. Yeah. More of an anti-hero, I think, than a conventional caped crusader. Walter Kovacs is a deeply scarred and flawed individual. That's his name, his secret identity, if you want to call it that. He spends his days as basically a homeless person protesting anything that he doesn't agree with. Or or rather, talking about end times. He's like the person with the sign that says, the end is nigh, repent, sort of thing. It's part of that non-linear storytelling I was talking about. Yeah. Due to childhood trauma and abuse, Rorschach has developed over the course of his life an incredibly dogmatic and stark worldview. He's made it his life's purpose to search out evil under the cover of night and stamp it out with extreme prejudice. Yeah, Uh, he's like Batman, but he'll kill you. (laughs) Yeah. He will mess you up. It's true. He goes around the streets just breaking people's fingers for information, so he's not really a good guy, but he's kind of a good guy. This city's afraid of me. I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. The accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up around their waists. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us. And 
I'll whisper. No. Who's next? Uh, Doctor Manhattan. Which we already discussed in the in yeah in the background in the background setting we of I talk a little bit about how he came to be. He's probably the most important person in the comic for what his existence means for this world. But he was born John Osterman to a German immigrant watchmaker, and he became a scientist specializing in atomic physics because he he actually I think he took a class of Albert Einstein's, and it inspired him so much he wanted to be a part of this incredible technological advancement. And then on one fateful day in August of 1959, he becomes trapped in that intrinsic field generator chamber thing and is destroyed, absolutely annihilated on a molecular level. Like we said before. Yeah. And he rebuilds himself and becomes functionally a god. The first superhero, the first real superhero to exist in this world. I am tired of Earth. These people. I'm tired of being caught in the tangle of their lives. Also important is Ozymandias, nominally the smartest man in the world. Adrian Veidt has created an industrial empire with his keen insights into, you know, human nature and the world. He sees himself as the only person who can truly save the world from itself. He sees himself as a modern-day Alexander the Great, and he wants to unite everyone, bring them into a utopia of his own design. Seems like a cool guy. Megalomaniacs can be good guys. <laughs> Two superpowers retreating from war. I've saved the Earth from hell. Now we can return. Do what we were meant to. The person to set the events of the comic into motion, like we said, is the comedian, or Edward Blake. Very nihilistic. He's often at odds with his fellow masked compatriots. The world to him is just a bad joke. It's a joke? Yeah. It is. He's a joke. It's all chaos that he makes sense of through violence and uh, just mistreating women, (laughs) I guess. I do not like the comparison to the Joker that a lot of people make. Yeah. It's not even... So we're not going to make that comparison. Yeah. Listener. They're both funny guys, though. This is all bullshit. Watch me. That's the real joke. Didn't work 15 years ago. Sure as hell ain't gonna work now just because you want to keep playing cowboys and Indians. You know, mankind's been trying to kill each other off since the beginning of time. We finally have the power to finish the job. Ain't nothing gonna matter once those nukes start flying while we'll be dust. Uh, perhaps the most morally good of this kooky cast of characters is Night Owl. He takes the title of the original Night Owl from the Minutemen of the 40s. 30s, 40s, 50s. Hollis. Hollis Mason was the original name, yeah. Dan Dryberg, who takes the title in the 60s, he's inspired as a kid by those original Minutemen to become a costumed hero. He gets caught up in the romance of it all, and he just wants to do good. He is... He's Batman. Yeah, he's he's like the better half of Batman. Rorschach Rorschach is all the flaws of Batman, and Dan is all the cool and better parts. Yeah. And he's really smart. He uses technology and gadgets to supplement his own fighting skills when out combating crime and other evildoers. He is the one who owns and had created the ship that they use, Archie, the floating orb with eye holes that functions as their spacecraft. How long can we keep this up? What the hell happened to us? What happened to the American dream? And then last but not least is Steven's favorite character, Silk Spectre 2. <laughs> Played wonderfully in the film by no. Malin Ackerman. <laughs> I can't even believe it. Just Oscar worthy. <laughs> <laughs> really snubbed that year. Oh, man. Uh, following in the footsteps of her mother, the original Silk Spectre, Sally Jupiter, Lori Jespezek, I hope I pronounced that right, is Silk Spectre 2. She never really got a say in what her life would be or her career, she was thrust into this world by her mother, who wanted her to be just like herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she just kind she gets wrapped up in the celebrity of it all. She's another second generation hero, just like Night Owl. Yeah, she has she has a pretty interesting relationship with a lot of these men. She's in love with Doctor Manhattan, and she's in love with Dan. Well, I don't know if you could say love. I think she's just she's trying to find herself in this comic. She's she's supposed to be very young. She's yeah. the youngest out of all of them. When they were formed in the Which 60s. Is, 
I was going to say, it would actually have been better if they would have cast someone that was younger than Malin Ackerman was at the time. Well, it's appropriate for the time. When when the Crime Fighters is assembled by Adrian Veidt... Oh, that's right. She's young. In the yeah, 60s, she was like a teenager. But by the time 1985 rolls around, I believe she's in her 30s at that point. I'm just trying to find a way to cast Reasons anyone else besides <laughs> Al Malin Ackerman. Yeah. I don't know. She... Even though her acting was weird in the movie, I think the essence of the character was right in that she's very immature and kind of like, like you said, she doesn't know who she is really because she never had a chance to figure that out. Her mother wanted her to be her. So or she also wanted, her mother wanted her to do better than her as well. Yeah. She says that in the end. And, and it was never really about the crime fighting, I think, for Sally Jupiter, her mother. It was always just about the celebrity. Yeah. Because it was all theater for the original Minutemen anyway. Mostly. For, for most of them. Yeah. And that's that's our main six heroes for the that, comic. Yeah. These are the characters that you follow and you get to know throughout these 12 issues of The Watchmen. Some of those people pop up again in the show. They do. Some of these people do pop up again in the show and some do not. So why was it written? What was going on at the time in the 80s to impact Alan Moore to write a story why would an Englishman write an American story like this? Well, Alan Moore is just someone who, as a self-described anarchist and occultist, and he was, like we said, very much against the establishment. And so he wanted to take the world at the time, which was kind of on the brink of World War III with the Cold War. No one knew what was going on, and that caused a lot of social anxiety that we feel today in different ways. And the superhero genre was just an easy way for him to use tropes to turn those ideas over onto themselves and mm -hmm. explore what that could look like in an alternate timeline. And that's where, like I said, those themes of moral ambiguity come into play with what does it mean to be a hero? Who is the good guy? Are we even the good guys when we think we are? Because American patriotism or jingoism even has always been kind of distasteful in a lot of people's eyes. Like we're very gung-ho as a culture and you see that a lot in the series that we'll talk about later in the next episode, how Damon Littleoff perfectly carries those themes of masked vigilantism is just an expression of the individual's desire to enforce their view of justice and order on the world. And that's different for each person. You know, Rorschach looks at the world one way and he sees this is evil, whereas the character next to him, whether it's Night Owl or Ozymandias or even Manhattan in a way, look at that thing and they see it completely different. So mm -hmm. you, you explore that from different points of view mm -hmm. and in different points of time and in different places. And it's good to just take all those things into consideration. And then you can maybe become a better person when you don't rush to judgment. I don't know. I think, I think that was kind of what Moore was going for. Yeah. Yeah. He felt the world was enforcing a viewpoint that was harmful. Mm-hmm both to the individual and to the world as a whole. Yeah, and speaking to the fear playing into the Cold War and the threat of a nuclear fallout, in the comic book, there's a physical representation of this metaphorical doomsday clock, and a gathering of leaders from all around the world would come together, and, or, and, and scientists, they would come together and decide how much closer we were to World War Three, World War Three, the end of the world, and they would tick the doomsday clock closer and closer to midnight. And so there is this looming existential threat that, again, was a metaphor for what was going on in the eighties with the Cold War. Yeah, and each issue of the comic ticks closer, right, to the end of the deadline. Yep. And in the very last one, Nixon's there in the room and he's about to fire the missiles off and in the world. So it's at 12 midnight. It was about there. And then that's where the final, the climax of the story happens. And oh, I won't spoil it. Well, crisis. No, no spoil it. <laughs> spoil this it. This has been out since 86. <laughs> we have to talk about this to talk about. What oh, that's true. Yeah. So. Ozymandias' grand plan. He, he had orchestrated the events of the entire comic. Everything was by his design to enact his final plan to do what he thought would save the world, which is essentially <laughs> cause a, a massive bomb to go off in the middle of New York under the guise of an alien intervention. So he, he teleports a giant manufactured squid. <laughs> squid alien. Onto New York City, and it kills three million people. Yeah. 
which causes the entire world to essentially stop what they're doing on the eve of this potential World War III and rally around a common enemy, which in their minds is this alien species, which is trying to attack the Earth. Right. And that was Ozymandias' plan, because he had surmised over the course of his career where the world was heading, which was inevitable Armageddon due to nuclear holocaust. And Ozymandias is considered the smartest person in the world. Yeah, self-described, but also by people who know him. And he's an egomaniac. And Yeah, um, but he is, he is really trying to do the right thing, and that's one of the reasons he's complex, is because while he is really the villain of this story, he is one who is ultimately trying to save the world. And to him, the ends justifies the means, so he's willing to kill three million people to save the rest of the billions of lives on the planet at the time. Mm-hmm. which I think in the 80s it was like four or five billion people. So I think it was a pretty good trade, in my opinion, but maybe that's why I'm not in a position of power. So every character, though, is trying to do what they think is right. I don't think we've even mentioned this yet, but Dr. Manhattan can see into the past and into the future, yeah. and he says that this happens all at the same time. And, and it's, it's uh, unavoidable. He's become very apathetic because of this. And he doesn't try to stop Ozymandias, even though he knows that this was going to take place. And Rorschach, who's, again, very black and white, is very upset. And he doesn't he just doesn't want to live in a world where something like this, an injustice like this can take place. And so he asks Dr. Manhattan to take his life. And then Dr. Manhattan, without really blinking, just acquiesces. Yeah. But we find out at the end of the story, and this plays into what we're going to talk about next time, Rorschach sends his journal kind of cataloging everything that he had come to know up to that point. Yeah. And then it gets released to the public. Well, the last thing we see in the comic is it's delivered to the journalist or to the newspaper publication. And the last line of dialogue in the comic is, I think the editor speaking to the guy who finds the journal, he says, it's all in your hands now. Mm. And so we don't know what he does with it until this new series that works as a sequel to the to the comic. Essentially, it's established that that journal was published right. and uh, disseminated true. to the world. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, interesting, because I always, even before this, the Damon Lindelof series, I always assumed that it was published. It might, yeah, in another world, it, it wouldn't have been. But that particular newspaper was a more right-leaning conservative newspaper, correct? Yeah. Okay. Because that was, you know, sort of Rorschach's character. Even though it's all complicated, because I don't think he was a fan of Nixon and the establishment at the time was very conservative. He himself was kind of a hyper right wing figure in terms of right. the sense of fascism and what he considered to be ultimate justice. Yeah, he's tricky. He's a he's a character, but that encourages his what becomes his group of followers in in the show from last year. Yeah. And then the other two characters, Silk Spectre and Night Owl, during this whole event, during everything exploding and Rorschach also exploding, they just decide to start having sex. They're really interesting characters on a psychological level, but... I feel like they're kind of representative of turning a blind eye. They're just kind of more concerned with themselves than anything else. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. But they're really interesting little studies on their own. But for the purpose of Watchmen as as a grand story, they don't really play into it as hard as Rorschach and Manhattan and Ozymandias. And Comedian. Comedian, yeah. Comedian has his presence throughout the whole comic, all 12 issues. Because even though he dies in the first issue, this comic is nonlinear. So the whole time you're reading it, even though it's issue one, issue two, issue three, you're jumping back and forth from the present to the past and sometimes even to the future. That's something I really think is is good about this. I liken it to the movie Arrival, if any of you have ever seen that, in the way that it kind of shows you glimpses into the future, but you you don't know that you're seeing the future. You you think you're seeing the past. Yeah. That's kind of the genius in the storytelling. And one more reason why it should be read a, a few times to really get the most out of it so that you know what you're seeing the second time through yeah which was Moore's intention i think right. i'm preemptively saying this but i think damon lindelof really captured that same kind of non-linear storytelling in the television show that we're going to talk about next time so anything else to say gabe about Watchmen, the comic book written by alan moore illustrated by dave gibbons and colored by higgins inked by Mr. Higgins. Uh, It's an incredible piece of art, and I think whether or not you're a fan, I think everyone can come to the agreement that it's an incredibly important and influential piece of media, you know, both uh, culturally but also for comics specifically. 
what they did with it. It was also pretty pretty revolutionary for the time. Yeah. Nothing like this had ever really been written up to this point uh, in comic books. Everything was very colorful. Not that Watchmen wasn't colorful. The, it was just the palettes were a lot more um, where it, it leans more toward one side of the color spectrum instead of the other. Yeah. And it got pretty dark towards the end, mm-hmm. literally. So a lot of blues, blacks, purples, things to represent the, that cold, eerie this yeah. topic. I actually have a quote. He said, colorist John Higgins used a template that was moodier and favored secondary colors. Moore stated that he had also always loved John's coloring, but always associated him with being an airbrush colorist, which Moore was not fond of. So Higgins subsequently decided to color Watchmen in European-style flat color. Moore noted that the artist paid particular attention to lighting and subtle color changes. In issue six, Higgins began with warm and cheerful colors, and throughout the issue gradually made it darker to give the story a more bleak feeling. It's amazing. And just goes into to tell what a great work of art this comic book is. Um, yeah, there was an incredible amount of detail. Yeah. And Gibbons really outdid himself in the panels. Yeah, every, everything yeah. about it is good. And it has its place in history of literature, not just in comic books, but I think in all of literature. I can hear Ali's voice in my head going, do a real book. <laughs> <laughs> Which we'll do eventually, Ali, I promise. We started an Instagram, by the way. Yeah, we did. Updated all the time. <laughs> uh, join us. I think I think it's the cult podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, next, so I, next time, what? Yeah, yeah, go. <laughs> next time we're gonna do the Watchmen. Watchmen 2019. <laughs> yeah, the Damon Lindelof show from HBO. It's real good. It's gonna sick. It's gonna sick. It's, it's gonna, gonna sick. It's gonna be sick. But it needs to be sexier. How? I can't be sexier than Come this. Come on, baby. You do that. <laughs> you do it. <laughs> I can't do Austin Powers. No one's going to... Hey, hey. The unforgettable you. The present is a worrisome time. Because. <laughs> <laughs> because. The future is unknown. The future is unknown. Nostalgia. <laughs> the unforgettable you. Nostalgia. Brought to you by Adrian Byer.